Would you believe in a love at first sight? Wait. Don't answer right away. Listen to the story and then make up your mind. Jesus was coming through town. It was in all the papers. Jesus was coming through town. Everyone was talking about it. The fruit vendor and the weaver, the baker and the guy at the meat market, that weird old potter who dabbled in subversive politics. The money changers were talking about it as they counted their profits. And the woman who ran what passed for an inn, and trust me when I say it barely passed, um, she made sure that all the tourists knew where to go to see the famous young rabbi on his way through town. Word eventually reached the ears of the tax collector, Zacchaeus, and it reached him in a roundabout way, which was the only way anything ever came to him, anything but cash money, that is. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Strike that. Zacchaeus was the tax collector, the head tax collector, the chief tax collector. Nobody's friend. He was the kind of guy that people talked about, not to. So he only heard the news that very morning. And actually, he'd have missed it even then, but he saw the crowds already gathered along the main road into town, and so he asked some kid too young to recognize him or too inexperienced to know quite how to smart off on him or too kind to do anything but give nobody's friend the courtesy of an answer. Jesus is coming through town. Hurry up or you'll miss him. So Zacchaeus hurried off to see what he could see. And as he hurried, he sang a little ditty that he'd picked up in some roundabout way, a popular song, he supposed, though how would he know what was popular and what wasn't? Besides, he'd long since given up caring about such things. Still, the song was a good one. And so he sang to himself as he hurried along to see what he could see. What would you think if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? It's a catchy tune. And it sure beat that other song, the one the children sang, those nasty little children whose mocking voices sang about Zacchaeus, that wee little man. And a wee little man was he. Thinking about that caused him to stumble. His face turned red. A wee little man was he. See the little piggy, they'd say. See the little piggy crying, wee, 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 all the way home. And so he sang all the louder. Regain to stride, lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song and I'll try not to sing out of key. There, that was better. His face resumed its natural haughty look, a look worthy of the richest man in town, the man that everybody hated and envied. They might shun him and turn their backs on him and refuse to pass the day with him and sick their children on him with their mean little hurtful songs, but in his best moments he knew that he was better than all of them. And in those moments he knew. He knew that what they really hated was his freedom. That's what they hated. And why they tried to tear him down, it was his freedom that they hated. His freedom to live how he pleased, to shop where he pleased, to demand the very finest things and the very finest treatment, even if it was grudging. Oh, they treated him well enough when there was money on the table. His money. Zacchaeus was positively striding now, oblivious to those who might find something comical in those short steps. Zacchaeus strode and he sang and he walked and he hummed and he made his way toward where the crowd was gathered along the main Jericho drag where he intended to see what was all this fuss about some young rabbi passing through town. He walked toward the crowd gathered by the road and he sang, 
What do I do when my love is away? Does it worry you to be alone? How do I feel by the end of the day? Are you sad because you're on your own? Today is Mennonite Heritage Sunday. <laughs> Not sure who named it that. Uh, some Mennonite, I suppose. But I have to say that for a Mennonite... To decide that a day ought to be called Mennonite Heritage Sunday seems to me, well, not being very Mennonite. Um, Anyhow, however we got here, uh, we're here, and it's Mennonite Heritage Sunday, so uh, let the celebration begin. There are all sorts of ways to think about Mennonite heritage. There is, of course, the Radical Reformation, the roots of our part of the Christian movement with tales of adult baptisms and worship in caves and martyrs and Dirk Willems going back across the ice to rescue his pursuer. The stump of Menno, as it were, planted in a rich piece of ground, a rich piece of ground for later generations to dig around in. And we do like to dig around in it, and that's a good thing, especially for those of us living in a society that does its best to pretend that there is no past, there is no history, no prior act which might explain our present circumstance. A society in which somebody can describe something as being so five minutes ago and be taken seriously a society that needs people like us, people with a memory, a sense of history, and an awareness of the simple fact that, as William Faulkner wrote, the past is never dead. In fact, it's not even past. But I'm starting to sound as old as Dirk Willems himself, so we'll move on. We can also think about our heritage um, as consisting of certain cultural or ethnic practices, quilting and chicken corn soup and four-part a cappella singing, the name game that helps Mennonites know where they belong, relief sales and 10,000 villages, practices which define us as a people, both over against the broader culture and also for the sake of our own community, our children, who need to know who they are and who they belong to. Good things, the things worth treasuring and passing along from one generation to the next, things which still have the power to draw new folks, folks like, well, me, toward the Mennonite part of the church. Then um, we have the theological heritage of the Mennonite church, practices and ways of being in the world that are theologically driven, overtly theologically driven, guided by our reading of the scripture, our appreciation of the value and even necessity of community, which leads naturally to our commitment to mutual aid, our lifting up of the value of simple living, or at least living more simply than our neighbor's or at least living less ostentatiously complicated lives than our neighbors, our tradition of voluntary service, our refusal to take up arms, our history of conscientious objection, and our various ways of obeying Jesus' call to serve the least of these through Mennonite Central Committee, Mennonite Disaster Service, Mennonite Mission Network, Christian Peacemaker Teams, and, and so on. It's a rich and deep and influential heritage that we do well to preserve and to protect and to pass on to future generations, uh, bearing witness to the God whose child is called, after all, the Prince of Peace. And then we can think even more broadly, drawing on the traditions and practices of the worldwide Mennonite church, a heritage that is being formed and shaped by African Mennonites and Indonesian Mennonites, uh, Indian Mennonites, Latin American Mennonites, Canadian Mennonites, European Mennonites, and, oh yes, uh, Mennonites in the U.S. of A., a heritage that is broader and more colorful in every sense of the word, a heritage that 
has its roots in 16th century Europe, but has also then been pruned and shaped and grafted and nurtured by the hands of sisters and brothers all over the world, a heritage that continues to develop as once dominant voices learn how to share the singing and as voices too long kept silent now take the lead, a heritage being birthed in difficult circumstances, shaking our Western complacency and self-satisfaction as we watch our sisters and brothers hold to those old Anabaptist values in places of violence and repression and political upheaval. Another very good and precious gift, a heritage that's still being formed, a heritage that is rich and full and beyond the wildest dreams of Menno, Conrad, and that George with the blue coat. Well, for my part this morning, I'd like us to think uh, about our Mennonite heritage in light of our story from Luke's gospel. That is, I'd like us to think about our heritage as a simple story of love at first sight. What do I do when my love is away? Does it worry you to be alone? How do I feel by the end of the day? Are you sad because you're on your own? Zacchaeus sang to himself as he made his way toward where the crowd was gathered in hopes of seeing the young rabbi pass by. Are you sad because you're on your own? Like many people whose fortune was made through dubious means, Zacchaeus made it a life principle to avoid self-reflection. It would be too much to say that he was ashamed of what he did, working for the Romans and collecting their taxes and taking his share off the top and then taking a share, too, from all those collectors under him, each one of whom became quite adept at squeezing money from stones, um, protecting their livelihoods by gouging their neighbors. It would be too much to say that Zacchaeus was ashamed of what he did, but what comes later suggests that he had at least some moral scale, some awareness of just how much he was causing his community to suffer, just how much advantage he was taking every time he went to work. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, and Zacchaeus lived in a hell of his own making, a hell paved with bad intentions and occupied by the ghosts of all those that Zacchaeus had betrayed, all those he'd gouged, all those he'd turned over to the authorities for failure to pay their taxes. Whatever the state of his internal life, however, we can safely assume that Zacchaeus was not well-liked in his community, not likely to be invited to all those small occasions that keep a community going, picnics and parties, those social gatherings that serve to to keep the community healthy. It's more likely, I think, that Zacchaeus served another social function, uh, that of the enemy, the one against whom the community comes together in that tried and true way that communities have of defining themselves, at least in part, by the strength of their loathing for the enemy in their midst. We cannot know if Zacchaeus was sad to be on his own, but we can safely assume that he was alone, and at the end of the day, Zacchaeus had little to comfort him beyond his possessions. And as someone once said, money can't buy you love. Zacchaeus made his way to the edge of the crowd. The people were all jammed together, shoulder to shoulder, elbow to elbow, without an inch of space between them. And as Luke and then Peter suggested, Zacchaeus was spatially efficient, um, compact, he, he didn't take up any extra space. Uh, he was, in short, um, <laughs> short. <laughs> and confronted by that wall of back, Zacchaeus had some choices to make. 
He could try to wedge his way through that wall, squeezing through to the front of the line where his vision would be unimpeded, but that would involve touching people and, worse, asking them to excuse him, and he could already hear the likely response to that. There ain't no excuse for you, wee little man. So, scratch that off the list of options. He could listen for the coming of Jesus, counting on the crowd to cue him in when Jesus was passing by, and then he could jump up and see what he could see in that split second between the jumping and the landing. But if he judged wrongly, that meant jumping a second time and a third time and maybe a fourth time, a veritable jumping jack bouncing up and down like a frog or a cricket or some other small hopping thing. Not the sort of image that the richest man in town wants to create in what was already a a hostile situation. So scratch jumping off the list. Which left Zacchaeus with a a choice. Um, He could turn around and go home and forget all about it. And he gave that some thought. He really did. I mean, was this Rabbi Jesus, with all the wild stories about his exploits and the rumors about his teaching, was he really worth all the trouble? Maybe not. Maybe it would be better to just go home and forget about him because some other excitement will come wandering through town and... The next time, Zacchaeus will make sure that he's out early enough to get a good seat. And so Zacchaeus starts to turn away, to turn around, to turn back. But he hears something, or somebody, somebody singing, somebody singing that same popular song that Zacchaeus himself had been singing not too long before. Do you need anybody? I need somebody to love. Could it be anybody? I want somebody to love. It was like an angel singing, calling Zacchaeus to reconsider, to think again, to to not be so hasty, so quick to give up, so quick to turn around, so quick to go on back home. That voice and those words, they called Zacchaeus to turn around one more time and to face that great wall of backs, that great wall of people, and consider one last option, one last way for him to see Jesus. And as he turned toward the sound of that voice singing, Zacchaeus saw a sycamore tree. Now, of course, he'd seen that tree a thousand times before. It didn't just appear out of nowhere. He knew that tree very well, but but he saw it in a new light. As he listened to that voice singing about needing and wanting somebody to love, Zacchaeus recognized that tree as being more than a tree. It was a ladder, like the one old Jacob saw angels climbing up and down on, a ladder that would carry Zacchaeus high enough to see over the crowd, to see over the wall created by the people of his community, to see over that wall and so see Jesus. And in that moment, Zacchaeus made his choice. He decided to believe that that voice singing, that voice he could not recognize, that voice that he preferred to believe was that of an angel. Zacchaeus decided to hear in that voice the voice of a friend, the voice of someone wishing and hoping and praying that Zacchaeus would get to the place where he could see Jesus, the voice of a friend. And so, with a little help from that friend, Zacchaeus climbed that tree and so got high enough to see Jesus just as he was passing by. Would you believe in a love at first sight? On this Mennonite Heritage Sunday, that's the question that I would like us to consider, would we, do we believe in love at first sight? Well, not just any love. 
Our heritage is that first love and that first sight, that love that began before we were formed, when we were still dust, a mere gleaming in the eye of God, a love that became active as that dust was gathered into God's own hands and then tenderly, lovingly shaped into God's own image. A love realized more fully as those newly formed beings were placed in a beautiful garden where they loved each other and were loved by the one who made them. A love that walked with them in the cool of the evening. A love that spoke to them every day. A love that pursued them when they sinned. A love that kept on pursuing them, kept on seeking them, kept on finding a way to call them back, to call them back to where they belonged. A love that continues to this very day. Still seeking, still saving, all of us lost, wandering, lonely ones. A love that is not turned away by our tuneless singing, our foolish wandering, our cheap settling for the next best thing. A love that was made flesh and walked among us. A love that came walking down that dusty road that went through Jericho on a day when the whole town was gathered to watch and see love come walking by. A love they didn't really recognize, but a love that drew them anyway. A love that drew even Zacchaeus, calling him from his place of exile, calling him up a tree, and all to see what love looked like. That ancient and still living love is our Mennonite heritage. It's a heritage that we share with lots of other folks. A heritage we share with the whole of creation, right? For God so loved the whole world part of the story. That's part of our heritage. Genesis tells us how God loved us from before the beginning of time, and John's gospel tells us that Jesus was part of that love beyond time, and and the scripture tells us that God has always loved us. God loved us at the very first sight of all that God had made. God loved at first sight and called it good. God keeps on loving us. God keeps on loving the world, and so the story continues as we human beings formed by God's own hands and loved into being, as we human beings figure out what to do with that love, how to understand it, how to respond to it, how to embody it, how to practice it, how to worship within its embrace. And so we have many expressions, many responses, many embodiments, many communities of faith, each one seeking to be faithful in responding to, what, to that love at first sight, each one peculiar in its own way but each one joined by that love that we have in common, a love that doesn't find its source in us or in human will, but a love that begins and ends in God, a permanent, eternal, unearned, extravagant, unspeakably generous love extended to the whole world so that the whole world, through that love, might be saved. This is our heritage, sisters and brothers. God loved us. God loves us. God loved us at first sight, and God keeps on loving us, and keeps on loving us, and keeps on loving us. And what better inheritance do we have, can we have, what better heritage for us to celebrate than that? And so, with a little help from that unknown friend, that friend with the voice of an angel singing, Zacchaeus got high enough to see Jesus. And he saw Jesus, and Jesus saw Zacchaeus, and it was love at first sight. Jesus called him by name. Jesus invited him to come down. Jesus even invited Zacchaeus to invite 
Jesus in for some tea. The calling by name, the invitation to come and be near, the intention to come stay with Zacchaeus, what more proof do we want? Do you believe in a love at first sight? Yes, I'm certain that it happens all the time. I believe that every time Jesus looks our way, there's love at first sight. So, yes, I am certain that it happens all the time. But that's not all. Look what else happens. Zacchaeus climbs down and welcomes Jesus into his home. And that's not all, because look what else happens. From that love at first sight, there comes justice. As Zacchaeus agrees to make good on all of his debts to the community, repaying several times over what he's taken from them over his lifetime of collecting their taxes. And that's not all, because look what else happens. Jesus reminds the crowd that Zacchaeus is a beloved child of Abraham, and so reclaims his place in the community. From that love at first sight comes a restored relationship, a renaming of Zacchaeus from enemy to friend, or at least to neighbor. And even that's not all, because see what else happens. As a result of this love at first sight, Jesus proclaims that the lost one has been found, that Zacchaeus has been saved. A prodigal is welcomed home, a sinner saved by grace in the form of love at first sight. This is our Mennonite heritage, sisters and brothers. All of those other ways of thinking about our heritage, whether we're talking about our history or our ethnic and cultural peculiarities or our theological commitments or our newly developing relationships with Mennonites around the world, all of them, all of them begin with that love of God at God's very first sight of creation, with God's love toward us wee little people, our commitment to welcome the stranger, to call her by name, it finds its roots here. Our commitment to serving the world around us in Jesus' name, it has its roots here. Our commitment to justice and to making amends and to seeking forgiveness, that commitment has its roots here. Our commitment to the creation of a healthy and loving community that heals brokenness and restores relationships finds its roots here. Our commitment to bearing witness to the truth of what God has done for us in love, that commitment finds its roots here, here in that love extended by God to, its cre- to his creatures and to every last one of us. This is our heritage, and it's shared by our sisters and brothers all around the world and in every last corner of the body of Christ. It's our heritage. It's our place to stand, a gift from the living God, a gift of love, a gift of love at first sight. Would you believe? Amen.